Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. That's the text that will be in this morning by the Lord's providence as we continue to make our way verse by verse through this book of the Bible, the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're really glad that you're here with us this morning and uh, really glad to be with you uh, if you are part of this church family. Love being with you on Sunday mornings on the Lord's Day, and uh, it's the joy of, of my heart and, and really what I look forward to throughout every week. And, um, and we need this. The Lord brings us together that we might encourage each other to walk with him. And so this should be a day in which spurs you on towards godliness. And so let's this morning look into these verses as we come to our main text of the morning. And this is the fourth and final week in this section. These 11 verses took us four weeks. We spent two weeks in verses one through three. And this will be our second week in verses four through 11. So let's read. And we have so much for the Lord to teach us this morning. And I'm hoping and I'm praying that you're not only informed this morning, but that you're transformed by his word. Let's let's look into these verses. Chapter five, I'm gonna read all of the verses, one through 11, and we'll look at just four through 11 in our time. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This passage is incredible. So hold on tight, but this is the word of the Lord. These are his words, his inspired, infallible, and errant words that he's spoken through 
his people, his writers, particularly his apostle, the apostle Paul. So what Paul is doing in this particular section in verses four through 11, this whole section is in light of the day of the Lord, but what he's doing in these verses that we're focusing on this morning, verses four through 11, is he's applying his teaching on the day of the Lord to the lives of these believers. He's applying his teaching on the day of the Lord, which we saw in verses one through three, to the lives of these believers. He is now making this teaching on the day of the Lord practically important for their everyday lives. What does this mean for the believers? And doing so, he provides this contrast between the believer and the unbeliever. Here's what the day of the Lord should mean for your life now. And as he's doing that, he's contrasting the believer and the unbeliever. He's showing that there's a difference. How the identity of the unbeliever, how the actions of the unbeliever, and how the future of the unbeliever will be different than the identity and the actions and the future of the believer. And so he's applying this teaching of the day of the Lord to their, to their lives, and he's showing how they should be different than those who will experience the day of the Lord. He's comforting these believers because they will not experience God's judgment. And he's also strengthening them to live different than those who will experience the day of the Lord. Believers have a great hope. They will not experience God's judgment, and they should live differently than unbelievers live. And so this, this section here provides hope and encouragement for the children of God. And also, it provides clarity about what God thinks about the unbeliever. It provides clarity as to the distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. And if you remain unsaved, not one of God's children, you're not part of God's church, this scripture, this passage, this section really defines you in God's eyes. If you don't know Christ, this passage provides some clarity as to how God sees you. But really, the focus here is on the application for the life of the believer. Teaching on the day of the Lord, God's judgment is coming what this means for the believer and how they can be comforted and encouraged because they're different than the unbeliever. But the unbeliever should see here how God defines them. And so this provides hope. This provides uh, comfort. This provides encouragement for the believer. And this should provide strength for you to live differently. And this should give clarity as to see how God sees you, how God characterizes you, how God defines you. And if you don't know Christ, once again, I hope that it brings about such a conviction that you do cry out to God for salvation. And so I've entitled this whole section, really, The Coming Day of the Lord, because that's really what's at the center of all of this teaching, The Coming Day of the Lord. And let me just lay this out for you so you know, again, the progression, and then we're going to get into these verses. Look at the verse, uh, look at uh, the, the progression of this. Remember, he provides the anticipation of the day of the Lord in verses one through three. He speaks of this coming judgment of God. He provides the idea there that it will be abrupt. He describes that the attitude of unbelievers will still be rebellious. And he describes how this destruction will suddenly come upon them. And there's gonna be this great damning activity of God in the lives of the unbeliever. 
And now in our section, once again, there's this application. And the application is for the believer. And the application is the believer won't be part of this judgment. Why? Because they have a new identity. They have a different identity. Therefore, their lives should be made up of different activity. And they will have a future, a different future reality. So today we're in this application, verses 4 through 11. That's the main heading. And the subpoints are that the believer has a different identity. The believer has different than activity. And then a different future reality. So a different identity, verses 4 through 5. A different, act, different activity, verses 6 through 8. Different future reality, verses 9 through 11. And we've already covered the fact that the believer has a different identity has a different identity. And so I won't spend all the time there, but we're going to recap it briefly. So let's move into this. The application in regards to the teaching of the day of the Lord for the believer is that the believer won't be part of this judgment because they have a different identity. Verses four through five. They have a different identity. Let's look at the verses. Verses four through five. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. Listen now. The message last week can focus completely on this point. So I'm not going to rehash all of it. You can go back and listen to it. But what Paul is saying here is that believers and unbelievers are categorically different in God's eyes. Believers and unbelievers are categorically different in the eyes of God. Believers will not experience God's judgment, specifically of the, on the day of the Lord, or his judgment at all for all of eternity. These Thessalonian believers here, which are a true church, remember in chapter one, we saw that they are true believers. Paul went to great lengths to show how these people here in Thessalonica that he's writing to are true saved believers. They've been, they're the elect of God and they've shown that by their works. Their, their works have been evidence and proof of their salvation. So these true believers... And by principle, every true believer. So he's writing to a particular people. This applies to them. They will not experience the coming day of the Lord, the judgment of God. But by the same principle, every believer that will ever exist in all of time will not experience God's judgment. They will not experience what's coming at the day of the Lord. That day will not overtake them like it will overtake the believers. Why? Because the believer has been given a new identity. The believer has been given a new nature. Those who have been saved by the gospel of Christ are in a new position. They have a new standing. They have a new place before God. They are in a different category in God's eyes. They're in a different sphere. They're in a different state. And therefore, they will not experience God's judgment. You know that those who have been saved by Christ will escape the judgment of God. And that's something that should comfort you. 
That's why in verse 11, he says, some of this application should bring comfort and encouragement. Some of this should cause you to be strengthened, to live right. We're going to get to that part in a minute. But this is the comforting portion. This should provide comfort for the believer. If you're saved, if you know Christ, there's only a few options for you. Either you're going to die before the coming of Christ and you're going to go to be with the Lord in paradise or heaven or the third heaven, all of which the Bible speaks of the same thing. You're going to die and go be with the Lord. That's one option for you. Or secondly, you'll be here when Christ returns to take his believers to heaven. That's the rapture. And you'll go to the same place and you'll be with the Lord. Or if this is not you because you're, if you're already a believer and you unbeliever is saved during the time of the tribulation, they're going to be left. They won't be overtaken by the day of the Lord. And the time of Christ's second coming, they'll be with him in his millennial kingdom. Some people will be saved during the tribulation period. And so then they'll be with him in the millennial kingdom. But those are the only options. You're either going to die, go be with the Lord. He's going to come back to rapture you if you're still here during the rapture. Or the believers who are saved at the, in the tribulation will be kept to reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom. But none of those possibilities involve judgment for the believer. Yes. And so what we see here is Paul saying that every believer will avoid God's judgment. Whereas the unbeliever, go back to verse three here, they will experience God's wrath. They will go to a place of torment and separation from God where it says at the end of verse three, with no possibility of escape. No possibility of escape. We, we are in a world where you can usually wiggle your way out of anything, right? Um, that's not going to be how it is with God. Once you die, you are, your fate is secured. There will be no wiggling out of judgment. And you could die today. There, there's no time to waste. You need to cry out to God for salvation. I don't know what's in the way for you, your pride or thinking you know better or thinking this is just optional. Some people say you can be a Christian or you should be one if you want to, only if you want to. That doesn't fly. That doesn't make any sense. It's the objective truth that you're a sinner and you stand before God guilty. It's not about whether or not you want to. You must become a Christian or you will face God's judgment. And so this is the fate of all those who don't know Christ. And they will either die their options. Ready? They will either die, go immediately to Hades, which is temporary hell. There, it's not purgatory. There, there's no such thing as purgatory. Um, you are in judgment as soon as you die. It's just there will be a second death, a final dwelling place called hell, the lake of fire. But you will remain or you'll remain to the day of the Lord and you'll immediately after the tribulation face God's judgment and be taken there. Or there will be unbelievers who are deceived at the end of, end of the millennial kingdom and then they'll be taken there. All of which you will end up in a permanent place of torment. The permanent place being the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and brimstone. At the final judgment, what the Bible calls the great white throne of judgment, it says that Hades will be burned up. 
and all unbelievers will experience a second death. That means they will go to the now permanent place of torment for all of eternity, which Satan, his angels, his prophets, and all unbelievers will be tormented there night and day for all of eternity with no escape. And so this is what Paul is saying. There is a coming judgment. You believers will not be part of it. You won't be part of it. He says the believers will not be part of it you're, because you're, you have a different identity. You're in a different category. Here's how he says it in these verses. You are not in darkness. You are not in darkness. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night and of the darkness. That is an essence statement. That is a being statement. That is one who is categorically listed as one who is in moral and spiritual darkness. It's not just uh, ignorance. It, that's, a, that's a state of category. That's a sphere that one is in. And the believer is not in the darkness or the night like the unbeliever. They are in the day. They are in a light. They've been transferred to the kingdom of Christ. And therefore, they won't experience the judgment of God. The believers transferred to this sphere through salvation. And really, the metaphor is extremely fitting, isn't it? Light, day, darkness, night. Think about it. It's not literally that this is someone who is born of, of uh, you know, light. It, it, this metaphor helps us to picture what he's saying here. And the realm of the sphere of light the one who has been saved sees. They see the truth of Christ. They see their own sin for what it is. They see the truth of God's word. They're made righteous positionally. They've been forgiven. They've been declared right before God. This is the one who's in the light. They've believed in Christ's substitutionary atoning death and resurrection on their behalf. That means that God provides an escape of his judgment. You can escape or avoid God's wrath through the death of an innocent substitute. What an act of mercy that he would allow someone to die in someone else's place. And the perfect spotless lamb of Christ is the one who does that. And then we're united to Christ by faith where his payment counts for us. And then we are dead then to our old life. Our sin is paid for and we're raised to walk in this new life. It's all gone and now we live by the spirit of God and we are free in Christ, no debt, and now able to obey God's commands. This is the new life in Christ. And that person lives in obedience to God. They turn away from sin. They have fellowship with God. They have a relationship with God. They're united to God through Christ. They have love for the saints. They're an ambassador to the lost. They have a hope of the future. That is one who has been transferred to the kingdom of light, truth. They've been healed. They see right. Their life belongs of, with righteousness and goodness. The day, he says, it's just a parallel statement to the light. It further illustrates the metaphor. This is the category that the believer is in. Think of the day. It's full of activity. Good activity. It's full of good works. It's full of warmth and growth and healing and nutrients. 
That's the picture of the one who has been saved. They are in a different sphere, a different category. They're in a sphere of goodness and righteousness and truth. It it characterizes the dominion that the believer has been transferred into. They are children of the light. They are in God's favor through salvation. And this is unchanging. This is permanent. This is their identity. And so therefore, the believer will not experience God's wrath. Now, by way of inference, because he's speaking to the believer about the fact that they are in the light in the day, but by the way of inference here, we can understand the category that the unbelievers in. They're in the, in the category of night. They're in the category of darkness. That's their state. That's their position. That's their sphere. They are in a state before God of moral and spiritual darkness. They are without salvation. They are of the darkness of the night. And the category is, is what they uh, are, are uh, described as here, but also how God sees them. And again, this metaphor is extremely fitting. They are, the Bible says that if one does not know Christ, they are not neutral. They are God's enemies. If you have not surrendered your life to Christ, you are not neutral. The Bible says you are at enmity with God. You are under his wrath. You are in darkness. You are awaiting divine judgment. And unless the unsaved person repents of their sins and trusts in Christ, then they are categorically in opposition to God. They live in sin. It's not just how they act, though. It's their position. It's who they are. It's the sphere in which they operate. They don't know God. Think about the darkness. They're blinded. They're dead. They delight in evil deeds. They're ignorant of the truth. They should be resting and preparing for the day. And instead, they're hidden and self-indulgent in their passions and pursuit. They're intoxicated in their minds. They're drifting to sleep by the distractions of the world. They're in the sphere of evil. The night, again, a parallel statement to the darkness, just expands the imagery. They're categorically part of the ones who don't see the truth. They don't see the truth of their sin. They don't see the truth of coming judgment. They don't see the truth of the gospel. And their deeds are evil. And one will experience the day of the Lord if they are categorically of the night and of the darkness. God, God's wrath remains on them because of their sin. And God doesn't just hate the sin and love the sinner. He hates the sinner. He sends the sinner to hell, not the sins. And so this person is distinct from the believer. There is no fellowship between the light and the darkness. There's no fellowship between these two different categories. Remember, as I read to you from the scriptures, there's no fellowship between the believer and the unbeliever. We, the, the believer tries to reach the unbeliever with the gospel. They need to be saved. There's no fellowship there. They are in two different categories. That's why the unbeliever must be reached with the mission of the church, which is evangelism. They are not an active participant in the life of the church because they live in a different sphere. They're under a different reign and rule. The only goal is to try to reach them. Then they become part of the church and then they can move into 
the local church. That's why our membership process, for instance, is affirming that one truly knows Christ and that they're willing to live as such a believer in the obedience of his word, because that's who the church is. You try to put an unbeliever in, in a realm of a believer and it's only going to go bad. They're under a different category, under a different rule. Jesus says that he came to make a distinction. He came to divide. Remember this in Luke? He came to divide. What is he saying there? He's coming to divide the believer and the unbeliever. There's not any gray area, and he's going to make a distinction. How? By his truth, his polarizing gospel that says, you are a sinner and you need to be saved, and I'm the one who saves you. You either believe that or you don't believe that. And by me coming and proclaiming this message, you will be on one side or the other. We're not going to leave any middle ground here. That's what Jesus is saying. And the religious who were there, they were, they were attaining, trying to attain righteousness through their works. They kind of looked like they were right with God, but they weren't. And Jesus says, through my coming and my message, there will be a division. You will have to choose. You are either believing that you are a sinner in need of salvation and you respond in repentance and faith to Christ or you're not, or you don't believe it and, the, and you are unsaved. And so verse 11, remember, this provides this great comfort for the believer that they are not in that category anymore. They have a new identity. They won't be part of God's judgment. And by way of application of this one point, before we move on to the next, listen to me now. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you've been made to be? I, I mean, some of us are so discontent with our lives. Do you know that the greatest gift in all the world, if you are a believer in Christ, you have already been given? If you have Christ, you have it all. This life might not be perfect, but you will avoid God's judgment because of the work of the lamb. And so that's your identity. That's how you need to see yourself as one who is in the light. And you should have comfort from that. Do you know what your destiny is because of Christ's work? Do you think of yourself this way? Are you comforted and encouraged because of the gospel of Christ? And so Paul continues then with the application, and then he instructs them now how to live. And this is very practical. He's saying this, if you have a different identity and you therefore won't experience God's judgment, you should live like those kind of people, not like the people who are under God's wrath. Why would you live like the ones who are in the darkness? And so we see now in verses six through eight, this different identity. Let's look at it and read this different identity versus six, uh, I'm sorry, different activity. This is number two, different activity. Verses six through eight. The believer has a different identity and therefore they should have a different lifestyle or they should live different than the unbeliever. This is the application for the believer in regards to the day of the Lord. Verses six through eight. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, this is rich. Stay with it, okay? Notice here. Follow with me. Notice here. The first person plural pronoun in starting in verse six. So then let us, let us, first person plural. What I love here is that Paul is including himself. Paul is including himself. And he did so at the end of verse five when he's talking about the children who are of the light. We, he says, first person plural, are not of the darkness, right? He's talking about those who have been saved and he's including himself. And remember in verse three, here's how he moves through these pronouns. It's important. Remember in verse three, he says, third person plural, they will experience God's wrath. That's the unbeliever. He says in verse four, you though, church, have been saved, will not experience God's wrath. He includes himself also. Verse five, he includes himself with this new identity. And now with regard to how the believer should live, he again, first person plural, includes himself in this. This says a lot because in these ways, they are the same as Paul. Think about this. The great apostle Paul, in the same way that they have been given a new identity, equal playing field as Paul. In the same way that they should live righteous in light of their new identity, equal playing field as the Apostle Paul. This is clearly what Paul is saying, is that we who are in Christ, including himself, are ones who have been placed into a different category, and therefore we should live differently, which is also incredible here, is that Paul, as a good pastor, is holding himself to the same standard as every other believer. He says, we got to live like this, right? And so what does he say? He says in verse six, look at this, so then... I mean, that's an important phrase. Stay with me now. Look at this. So then, this connects us with the foundational teaching that he just gave. Okay? The believers have a new identity. Then this characteristic should cause you to live differently. This characteristic that he just talked about should determine now your new conduct. So now, the activity of the one who will not experience the day of the Lord, the ones who won't experience God's judgment, the regenerate, the ones who have an indwelling Holy Spirit, who know the truth, who know God, who believe his word. Now notice this before we look at these specifics. He didn't have to encourage them to be day people. He says you are day people through the work of Christ. But it is possible for the day people to live like night people. So he does have to encourage them to live differently. The day people are day people categorically because of the work of Christ, but they must put in effort to live like those whom they've been called to be. And so the tone here is that he's not threatening these true believers. He's appealing to their new identity. He's saying, live like who you've been made to be. Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the idea here. 
Ephesians 4, 17, he says, now this I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Don't walk like the ones who don't know Christ. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greed to practice all, every kind of impurity. But that's not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the idea that he's saying here. If you're of the light, live like you're of the light. Are you catching this? I mean, you have to see this. This is what he is saying. Ephesians 5, 11 through 21 says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as wise, uh, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days of evil are evil. Don't be foolish. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine. This is debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So you should and will live differently if you are a children of, child of the light. This is encouragement now, strengthening to do so. Remember, he's providing encouragement, comfort, and strength to live right. So what does he say here? Well, he gives these negatives and positives. So what does he say? The first negative here, he says, look at verse six. So then let us not, so that's a negative. He's pointing out what they shouldn't do, right? Let us not what? Sleep. We're in verse six. Let us not sleep. And so again, he includes himself but he says, let us not sleep. Now, he, he's saying, let us not sleep as others do. Remember how he uses the word others. It's used back in chapter four, verse 13, to describe the unbelievers. So then, because you are in the category of the light, let us not sleep as the unbelievers do. Now, what is he saying there? Well, Paul is saying these believers who have a new identity should not sleep. Sleep here is not the same word as chapter four, which describes the believer's death. This is a different word. He's not describing believers who die. He's just, it's a metaphor describing spiritual indifference. Therefore, because you are of the light, don't sleep as others do, as the unbelievers do. Don't live a spiritually indifferent, apathetic, sluggish, lethargic, laid back, idle, inattentive to spiritual realities life. You're living like the unbeliever. Don't live like you're not in a life and death situation, like this isn't war. 
Don't live like you don't understand the weight of God's truth. Don't live as one who doesn't believe that there is any coming judgment, that Christ reigns and that Satan is trying to pervert the ways of God's people. Don't live a spiritually asleep life. Wake up. Wake up. This is life or death. This, this life is short and there is a coming salvation or judgment. And God's word provides the conditions and the truth and the characterization, uh, characterization and the category for both parties. He's saying that the Christians should therefore, because they have been saved and they are of the light, should live not in a way that's not caring about spiritual realities. They shouldn't be slothful in their zeal to repent. They shouldn't be apathetic in their desire to grow. They shouldn't be slothful in their desire to mature and to please and obey God. They shouldn't be passive in gaining knowledge about what the word means. They should be changed. They should be like Christ in their service Romans chapter 12, they shouldn't be slothful in zeal. The gifts that they've been given by God, they should use them for the church, not for themselves. They should, be, they should not be open to the lifestyle of the unbelievers. They shouldn't be undisciplined. Listen, I, we're doing a, a study through a, a book on spiritual di discipline with a, a group of men on Wednesday mornings. And it, it's... It's incredible to think through just the practicalities of this idea. You will grow proportionately to the amount of effort that you put in spiritually. I mean, it's just simple. It's just like everything else in the world. If you will reap what you sow, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. I mean, it's just common sense. If you give just a little bit of effort to your spiritual growth, you're going to remain immature. Now, what usually happens, and we read about this, and it's so true, is that Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God like we do, they want to avoid legalism so bad that they put in no spiritual effort at all. And what I mean by that is you want to say, well, it's not by me. It's not, I'm not earning my right standing with God. It's only Christ. Absolutely, 100%. But there's a difference between being positionally uh, right and giving effort for sanctification. You are positionally made right through the work of Christ alone, period. You're not working hard in your sanctification to earn your right standing with God. That's given by God as a free gift. But that doesn't mean that you then don't try hard, put in the spiritual sweat to grow. You're not trying to earn right standing with God. You've already got it. But now you will grow proportionately to the amount of effort that you put in spiritually. And so don't let that trick make you apathetic in your growth. He's got the bigger picture in mind here and that the believer lives like they're asleep, uh, shouldn't live like they're asleep spiritually, lethargic, lazy, as one who is not aware of spiritual realities. He should live like there's life and death and salvation and spiritual war. This is the one who should, this is how the believer should live. The unbeliever is asleep. Not aware of their sin, 
God's coming judgment, their necessity to repent and believe in Christ. So he says there now in the positive, but let us, what? In contrast, keep awake and be, what? Sober. There's another two metaphors here. Keep awake, alert, present tense, meaning a continuous action, no completion or, or stoppage in sight. Keep, keep on being awake. Keep on being alert. It speaks of our activity. It means that you should have deliberate action. You should be watchful. You should always be ready. You should be alert. First Corinthians 16 says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to, desire, to, to, to devour. You shouldn't be spiritually asleep to, to the realities that, that we understand about the word and about the world. You should be awake and alert. You should be watchful. You should be constantly thinking through the lens of the word of God. You should know what's going on. Listen now, you as a believer in Christ have the responsibility to know what is going on. You, you need to know what's going on. You need to know the fate of the unbeliever. You, you need to know the fate of the believer. You need to know how one is transferred from Darkness to light. You need to know the truth about judgment and heaven and hell. It's where you need to increase in your knowledge in the word of God. You need to have discernment about the world. Even within the church, the worst Christians are the ones who bite on every little new fad. Listen, just stay the course with the word of God and you'll outlast everybody. You need to, you need to have discernment you need to not bite on every time something bad happens in the, inside the local church. It's gonna happen. Just keep going. Just keep pursuing the word and doing what's right. Don't bite on what the world says. You need, to have, you need to be awake. You need to know what's going on. You need to have spiritual discernment. The devil lies. He, he pulls people into personal temptation and sin. You're not, you can't be unaware of the schemes of the devil. And so he's pleading with the lost, the ones, I mean, the saved, the ones who, are, who have been saved by Christ to live this life being spiritually alert, watchful, awake. It involves deliberate action. But then he says also to be what? Be alert and awake and what? Sober. This speaks, so this is another metaphor, it involves the attitude. It's the self-controlled mind. The one who is not sober is not self-controlled. They live in an ultimate, alternate reality when they're drunk. Now, he's speaking of this metaphorically to the spiritual life, right? For 2 Timothy 4, 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 1 Peter 1, 13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober, set your hope fully on the grace that will be given to you at the revelation of Christ. Sobriety, clarity of mind, set on reality, not an untrue reality. If you live in this world like what the word of God says about judgment, about Christ, about salvation is not true, you are living in a false reality. The world is living in a false reality if they don't know the truth of the word. And that's what one who is drunk does. They're living in an alternate reality. And you shouldn't be living, spiritually speaking, in an alternate reality. You need to know what's going on and you need to think rightly about the things of God. 
not like the ones who are in darkness. This is how you should live if you're a children of light. You are distinct from those who are God's enemies. Why would you live like them? What he's saying is you should be as far away as possible from those who are of the night. You should not be anything like them. You are defined by who God has made you to be and what he says you should be in the word. There's there's a lot of people who are far more comfortable in the world than they should be. You are far too comfortable with your fellow employees than you should be. You should be trying to reach them with the gospel. You shouldn't be trying to be a part of them. What fellowship does light have with darkness? You're categorically different. You're awake and alert about spiritual matters. You're thinking rightly about reality. If you are just trying to be accepted by them, shame on you for how selfish that is. You're destining them to hell when you have the gospel in your possession to give to them. Now, you can't control that. Only God can but because you'd rather fit in with the night than reach it. This is exactly the idea. He's contrasting the unbeliever with the believer in his application regarding the day of the Lord. So the believer has a different identity and the believer is not going to experience God's wrath and therefore the believer should live live differently. Verse verse seven, look, for those who sleep, sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. What he's saying in essence here is pretty simple. He's talking about how the believers, the, the unbelievers act that don't know Christ. He says this, sleep, listen, here's what he's saying in this verse, sleep in an actual sense, in a literal sense happens when? At night, Drunkenness, in actual literal sense, happens when? At night, usually. Some people get drunk during the day. It happens at night. So also, the one who spiritually sleeps is of the night. And so also, the one who is spiritually drunk, not sober, is of the night. I mean, it's a pretty simple axiom here, what he's saying It describes the unbeliever, and we are not categorically like them. So verse 8, he says, but since we belong to the day, since, it's a a presupposition, It's, it's presupposing that this is true of them. Since you are believers, he's saying you are, speaking of their identity, their nature, their existence, of the day, the sphere dominated by righteousness, goodness, especially in the realm of being allies of God, that he described earlier, because they are different, they are in Christ, there's no wrath, right? Titus 2 says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Since this is the category, you should be sober, he says in verse eight, right? You should be sober. It's the same word as earlier. But now he gives us some specifics and I want you to to really focus on this because this is gonna help you. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, look at this now, having put on the what? 
breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, what Paul is doing here is saying, let us be sober, and this is the way in which you live with this clarity of mind. This is the way in which you live sober and awake and alert. We'll have had to have done some things. And so what Paul has in mind for day people is clearly that of a soldier. Why? Because he now talks about armor. And so what his idea is here is that day people, the ones who are living as day people, have been prepared to be so like a soldier prepared for a battle. So if you want to know how this is going to go for you to live as a saved day person, it's not going to be easy. You're going to live like a soldier or you're going to get hit constantly with Satan's attacks. That's how you live this way. Some of us want to live as day people and we want to figuratively speaking, just lay on the couch spiritually to do it. That's not how it's going to work. He says the one who lives as a day person is going to have to be like a soldier who's prepared for battle. Romans 13, 12 through 14 says the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul here is getting this imagery probably from Isaiah 59, 17, where righteousness is described as a breastplate, salvation as a helmet. We know he speaks of this, which I read earlier in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Psalm 18 speaks of the salvation that I read even in the beginning of the service as a shield. So look at these here. These are specifics, but they are so practically helpful for you to understand how to live this way. Very practical. Breastplate. What's a breastplate? Well, it protects your vital organs. It, it, it protects the vital organs. What is the breastplate? It's of faith and love. Talk about this for a minute. Let's talk about this. Look, faith. Simply put, trust in God. Trust in God. Now listen, he begins, for the believer, begins with faith in Christ. Clearly we know that. But he's, he's talking to Christians who have been already made right in Christ. So he's saying for you to live as a day person, now that you are a Christian, you live by the shield, the breastplate that's protecting your vital organ, organs of faith. What does this mean? Well, believers continue believing God and trusting God. It means they know what his word says and then they believe it and they live it out obediently. If you trust what God's word says by faith and you just trust him and do it, sometimes it's hard but you trust it above what you think. You trust it above what, above what you feel. You trust it above your own wisdom. You trust it above your own ideas. You trust it above your ways. Then you will be protected from temptation. He's, you must believe what God says in his word as true is true and trust it by faith. It's one thing to say, yeah, I believe the word of God is true. It's another thing to actually trust it to do what it says. If you believe your own wisdom, 
If you lean on your own understanding, if you feel so you do, some people are just so, they just, they don't even realize it. They just react all day based upon their feelings, what they feel, what they want constantly. If you live like that, rather than seeing what the word of God says and then trusting it by faith, even though it's hard, but constantly doing that, if you just live by yourself, you'll be open to all these attacks of Satan, your own flesh in the world. If you live by faith in the word of God, trust what he says, you'll be protected from temptation. Think about this. Think about practically forgiveness. You live how you feel regarding forgiveness. You you got the attacks of sin and Satan coming at you. Rapid fire. What about how the church is supposed to look and operate? We start doing that by our own wisdom, what we think, feel. I mean, Sin's going to run rampant. It's hard to do it God's way. We've got to trust what he says more than what we think and feel. What about, about your own sin? Well, that thing doesn't really have too much control of me. It's fine. Really, what does God say about that sin that you're participating in? Do you trust what he says about it more than what you think about it? What about your role as a wife? What about your role as a mother? What about your role as a husband? Well, I think that the woman should be like this, really, but what does God say? Are you gonna trust it by faith and live it out obediently? It's gonna be hard, but you gotta trust what he says more than what you say. What about as a pastor and preacher? What am I supposed to do? Well, I could kind of come up with some things that I think might be effective, or should I just trust what God says, do it his way, even though it's gonna come with some difficulties? What about the sovereignty of God in your life in regards to anxiety and worry? You're just gonna trust him that he even notices the sparrow, his eye is on the what? Sparrow. What does that mean? It means that he is intimately involved in your life. You're gonna trust that? Or are you gonna continue to worry and try to micromanage your life? Or are you just gonna trust God and do what he says? What about being a church member? What about a servant? What about evangelism? What about spiritual growth? What about spiritual disciplines? What about sexual purity? What about obeying your parents? You gotta trust him more than what you feel and think, and that will protect your life from temptation and the attacks of Satan. You gotta trust what God says by faith, not leaning on your own understanding. This is a breastplate for our lives. And so this is the way in which we are sober, not living in a different reality. But he also says this breastplate is of love. Same thing, part of the breastplate. But love, love, what do you mean, the breastplate of love? How does that protect me? Well, first, it's gotta mean love towards God because that's what faith is directed to, God. So love has to be here towards God. It motivates all obedience. You wanna protect your life from temptation? Continue to cultivate your love for God. The love that you have for God should motivate all your obedience. Listen now, you have to understand this. You have to cultivate a deep, meaningful, real love for God. And that's what must motivate all of your obedience. You are saved by the work of Christ and you want to please God with your life because you love him after you're saved. Not to earn right standing because you're only given it through Christ, but out of a love for God because he's saved you, because he's the Lord, because you are accountable to him. He's created all things and he's wonderful and he's perfect and holy. There's so many Christians who don't have this true, deep, meaningful love for God. And your obedience to God should be motivated by your love for him.
You have to cultivate this love for him. Remember when he said to Peter, Jesus did, do you what? Love me. And he says what? Feed my sheep. The love that Peter had for Christ is gonna motivate his obedience. And so, listen now. This is the primary focus for the believer to protect his life from temptation, cultivating a love for God. But I think it also involves love for others. If you live a life without love towards others, specifically towards the body of Christ, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of attacks from the enemy. Your own sin against others, your constant relational strife, the Proverbs say that harsh words stirs up anger. You allow sin to fester in you and around you. you. You lead the weaker brother into sin. Listen now, we're almost done here. Look at me. If you live a life without love as a believer in Christ, you are going to open yourself up to all kinds of attacks. Lack of love in your own life will hurt you and open you up to temptation. Bitterness, lack of trust, rebellious kids. I mean, the list just goes on. You try living a Christian life without love. And so you have to understand this faith to trust what God says and to do it. And this love for God and others is how the day people live. And it protects them from temptation and from sin he says also, just move on here. And by the way, the breastplate in scripture is described as that of righteousness, right? And this is what it produces in you. Your faith in God and obedience to his word is this righteous living. Love for God, love for others, same thing. That breastplate of righteousness protects your vital organs. You live an unrighteous life and you're gonna be open to all kinds of temptation and sin. And that's not how day people live. So then he says the helmet of salvation. I gotta move here just a few minutes. The hope of salvation. What does the helmet do? It protects the what? The head, the mind, and the temptation to sin. How, how do you fight that? Well, he says that there's a future, he's speaking of future salvation here. The Bible, listen now, the Bible speaks of salvation really in three different categories, past, present, future, right? He's saved you, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? And salvation is closer, nearer to us than when we first believed. There's a future aspect to this. And so, the hope of salvation, meaning this, very simply, fix your eyes uh, on what is to be yours in eternity. Look ahead. Remember in chapter one, verse three, he talks about the steadfastness of hope. In chapter one, verse 10, he says, you're waiting on the son to come, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen now, if you don't have an eternal mindset, Think about how short this life is, that Christ is coming, that you will experience eternal life when you die, you will live in all kinds of temptation and sin. You have to have an eternal perspective. If you're not constantly fixing your eyes on eternity, you're gonna think this life is all that there is. You need to know the eternal state that you live in. You will be eternally God's or eternally in hell and you know that in Christ, you are his and that you will have a salvation awaiting for you. And this protects your mind from giving in to temptation. You need to look ahead. You need to know this life is short. You need to know that eternity is waiting. You need to know that what really matters is your eternal life with God. And that will protect you. So... This is how the Christian lives 
as a day person. These are, this is the Christian triad, right? Faith, love, and what? Hope. And so this is the one who lives spiritually awake. This is the one who lives spiritually awake. Now let me just mention this last point here in verses nine through 11, the rea future reality. Hey, let me just mention this because it's, it's pretty obvious and clear. It says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are, what? Doing. All he's saying here is this. Why this contrast? Well, we are categorically different than the unbeliever and we should live like it because we don't have the same destiny. Now look what he says. God has not what? God has not what? Destined us. The picture here is of God's sovereignty and salvation once again. God does the work of salvation as we discussed thoroughly in chapter one, right? The believer is destined, meaning destined here means to make or to cause to undergo a change or to cause to undergo an experience or to consign someone. And so what he's saying is you believer have not been consigned to wrath. You believer have been given, have been caused to undergo a change in condition by the sovereign work of who? God. God has not destined you for wrath. The believer has been elected by God. He's been chosen by God. He's been called by God before the foundation of the world, granted from eternity past to inherit the kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world. And so this has in mind the future aspect of salvation again. I know I'm going long, but I got to finish this. So just stay with me for a couple minutes here. This has in mind your future aspect of salvation. God has elected the believer to inherit salvation. You should live like this because you have been saved. You have a different identity. You should have a different activity and lifestyle because you also have a future, a different future reality. So this is, this is wrath for the unbeliever, not wrath for the believer. Now look at this. Let me just say this. How does he do this for the believer? He does it through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. How does the person get transferred from the dark to the night to where no wrath is upon them? They've been destined for eternity. It happens through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. This is a simple statement. It's so simplified here in the way that Paul puts it, but there's so much behind it. And what he means is that Christ has died in the place of the believer to save them and call them out of darkness into light where there's now no wrath and they should live like the believers that they are. This happens through Christ. Make no mistake, this happens through the work of Christ. So as we close here in verse 11, once again, encourage or comfort, strengthen. How? Day of the Lord is coming. Listen now, judgment is coming. You, believer, will not experience it because you are in a new sphere. You, are in a different, you have a different identity. You're in a different kingdom. Therefore, live like it. Live like that. 
because you're one who has not been destined for wrath, but God has elected and saved you and called you through the work of his son to be his, to inherit salvation. You should be comforted that you will avoid God's judgment and you should be strengthened to live like who you've been made to be. Let's pray.